Hello, I'm Anna Machen. Welcome to Why? Adventures to the Edge of Knowledge. When I had my first child, I was fascinated by watching the relationship form between my husband and our daughter. It was a bond built on care, on love and on fun. He could make her laugh like no one else. Now, the human brain is hugely complex. It differs between individuals structurally. Different parts can be different sizes. In addition, neurons can fire in different patterns and brains can be differently affected by the hormones that run through them. All of this affects how we behave, how we feel, and how we build the relationships we have with each other. We now know that dads build a unique but crucially different bond to their children as compared to mum, and that evolution has given them a helping hand by endowing them with hormone and brain changes, just like mum, to prime them to parent. But the question remains, are dads just male mums, or are dads and their role unique? Today on Why, we're asking, are dads wired differently? Everybody is really wired to become a parent, but what is necessary and what is crucial is practice. Dr. Pascal Vatirka is Associate Professor of Psychology at the Centre for Brain Science, Department of Psychology, University of Essex. What we can also see in the synchrony between dads and their children is that actually the amount of synchrony depends on the dad's caregiving beliefs. So how strongly they think that it's important to be a father, to be there for the child and how much they feel rewarded by interacting with their children. We think that What happens in a man's brain when he becomes a father is more or less the same thing that happens in a woman's brain when she becomes a mom. So we have rewiring happening in those brain areas that are most important to feel what the baby is feeling, think what the baby is thinking, and to really establish this close connection that is so important for healthy child development. Okay, and can you explain to me exactly which bits of the brain are involved there? The changes are quite widespread. They are slightly less widespread than in the brains of mothers, of women. But uh, what has been shown is that, for example, there is lots of plasticity happening in the default mode network, so in the regions that are important involved in mentalizing, in theory of mind, so in thinking what the baby might be expressing, what the baby might be needing. There is also plasticity happening in emotional brain areas, in areas um, important for um, empathy, so really for feeling what the baby is feeling at the moment and what it might need to maybe be soothed. And there is also quite a lot of plasticity happening in regions that are important for emotion regulation because parents are extremely important co-regulators for infants, right? Because they cannot regulate their emotions by themselves. So basically, the changes are happening everywhere in the brain. And they're really there just to to really give dad and mum a helping hand going forward, isn't it, in giving you those skills that you're going to need when you're really, really tired and (laughs) you haven't had much sleep, but you can still read what the baby needs. You can still want to actually care for that baby, empathise with that baby. Yes. So those changes, they prepare dads and moms in the best way possible to attend to the child. 
But the wiring, of course, is just one thing, right? It's like the computer. If you have all the hardware, the computer can do many different things. But you need the right software to actually specialize the computer to do particular things. And that's exactly the same thing that you need in dads and in moms. So you need practice. You need to really install these programs that help the parents most to attend to the baby's needs. Now, I know that you are really interested in a thing called neural synchrony between parents and children. And I must say, I'm fascinated by biobehavioral synchrony. In my wider work, I look at all close relationships. And and I really do think it's a key foundation to close human relationships, the fact that we see this synchrony between sort of behavior, between physiology, between neural synchrony. Can you explain to me what neural synchrony is? What do we see in the brains of two people who are in neural synchrony? Yes, so neural synchrony means that brain activations of two or more interacting people will become attuned in time to one another. So within the same or similar brain areas, at the same time, you will have a similar pattern of activations and deactivations that follow each other in time between, for example, a dad and the child. What is important here, however, is that the activity doesn't have to be exactly the same. So it doesn't mean that if the dad's brain activation is at the highest, the child's activation has to be also at the very highest at the same point, right? There can be a leader-follower relationship, but the most important thing is that the brain activation becomes attuned to one another, that there is a temporal relationship between the dad's and the child's brain activity. So in a way, it's kind of like two minds understanding each other, becoming closer It's literally being on the same wavelength, right? If we talk to each other, then we should have more or less the same activations at the same time. Otherwise, we won't understand each other. And the same happens for nonverbal clues for understanding what children are thinking and for feeling what they are feeling, right? So it's, it's really the basic glue that holds us together and that helps us be a good and attentive parent. So the fact that we see neural synchrony in dads with their kids, what does that tell us about the bonds that dads build with their children? Well, that's a slightly complicated issue, right? Because when we look at brain-to-brain synchrony, we can only talk about correlations, right? We can only say that if a dad's brain and the child's brain activity is synchronized, and if that, for example, correlates with some task performance or some other parameters, that there is a correlation. But we cannot say that this is causally linked, right? So we cannot say that the synchrony causes the relationship to be better or that through the relationship, then there is a causal increase in the synchrony. But we can say that, you know, the notion is that the more synchrony there is, the easier it is for the parents and the children to understand each other, to attune to one another, to have a harmonious relationship. What we can also see in the synchrony between dads and their children is that actually the amount of synchrony depends on the dad's caregiving beliefs. So how strongly they think that it's important to be a father, to be there for the child, and how much they feel rewarded by interacting with their children. So what you're actually saying is the changes that occur in the brain for mums and dads are pretty similar. So dads aren't wired differently in that sense. But do we see brain activations differ between mums and dads, for example? Do we see different areas of the brain, for example, having different peak activations when they're interacting with their children? So the idea is that in dads' brains, we might have slightly more activation when they interact with their children in more cognitive cortical areas that are involved in social understanding and mentalization. Whereas in mothers, we might find a bit more activity in more emotional regions related to empathy and just emotional processing, which might come from the fact that mothers might have a slightly more direct biological connection to the child because they already feel the child growing before it is born. For fathers, it takes a bit more time to 
establish this kind of biological relationship because it can only happen after birth. So initially, there might be a bit more trying to think what the children are actually going through. But with time, I think these activation patterns, they really become much more similar. And the more the fathers are hands-on and the more experience they have and the more involved they are in, in child caring activities, the more these uh, activation patterns in moms and dads look the same. I mean, I think that's certainly, isn't it, what we've seen in the brains of primary caretaking gay fathers is that, that actually they seem to be very close to the activations that we see in primary caretaking mothers. Yes. So that's really a very important point here. So basically speaking from a neurobiological perspective, any adult can become a good parent, right? Regardless of biological sex, gender, relationship status, whether the parent is actually giving birth or not. So everybody is really wired to become a parent, but what is necessary and what is crucial is practice. Does that mean, though, that, for example, fathers have to live with their children or is it just the case that they have to see their children regularly? Because I'm aware that there's a lot of dads who don't get to live with their kids and that might concern them in terms of whether or not they're going to, you know, be able to have these brain changes that assist them in caring for their children. Yes, I think what is key here is the distinction between quality and quantity, right? So it doesn't really help if you see your child every day or for several hours a day if, if you don't really interact with the child, if the interaction doesn't have a high quality. I don't think that the quantity is really the thing that counts most, but it's really that quality aspect to make us as much use and invest as much time and energy and yeah, just enjoy the interaction with the child if you can. Now, I just want to move on to another slight change, a physiological, biological change, which I always found really fascinating while I was studying fathers. And that's what happens to testosterone when you become a dad for the first time. Can you just tell me what happens? So there is quite consistent evidence from many different countries around the world that testosterone is highest in single men and that it then starts dropping when they start to have a relationship, that it then even further drops when they become married and that it then drops again if they become fathers and that it is at its lowest when they are a most involved father. So when they spend a lot of time and when they are very invested in childcare activities. Why is that dropping testosterone so important? Why do we need it to happen? Well, I think here it's important to not only look at testosterone because testosterone is just one of several hormones that is changing when men become fathers and all of these other neurotransmitters though, and neurohormones that are involved are also very important. So I think here one other key player that we should also consider is oxytocin. And what we see here is that the more the testosterone drops, the more the oxytocin in men actually goes up. So there's a negative relationship between those two. And we think that what happens here is that this drop in testosterone and, this, and the simultaneous rise in oxytocin really prepares the fathers to focus inward, focus towards their family, to nourish the family rather than to look for maybe potential alternative mating partners or, or things like that. So really to focus on the child, to nourish the child and to nourish the family as such. Yeah, absolutely, isn't it? Because testosterone is absolutely fabulous as sort of a, a hormone to help you find a mate, but not so great if we actually want you to stick around. And I think what also interests me about testosterone is even if you're not a father, we find that men with low testosterone tend to be more motivated to care for children. So th there seems to be something going on there that, that it seems to help motivation. And as you say, oxytocin and indeed dopamine go up. So not only are you motivated, but actually you build, you get rewarded for building that bond. Yes, and there are also other neurohormones that are increasingly looked at, like vasopressin or estradiol or, or cortisol even. And so what we really need to do in the future is to look at more and more of these players, these hormones, and to see how they interact with each other, because only looking at one or two is only 
yeah, just one piece of the puzzle. Yes, it's quite a complex web to unwrap. I've, I've personally started trying, but it's a little bit tricky. Okay, I want to move on a little bit from the biology side of things to look at maybe a more psychological element of a parent-child relationship. That's attachment. And the father of attachment, John Bowlby, who started writing about attachment in the 1950s, claimed that dads didn't actually form attachments to their children, that the attachment was mother and child and dads didn't really get a look in. Now, we know this is wrong now. First of all, can you explain to me what is attachment and why is it so incredibly important to a child to have an attachment relationship to a carer? Attachment is a strong and enduring emotional bond that a care seeker forms to a care provider. So it's usually a child who becomes attached to a caregiver who is, in many cases, the parent, a very close person in their lives. And the important thing here is that it's quite a specific relationship because it mainly happens when the care seeker is in need or in distress. So it's not something that happens with everybody and it takes time to develop. And what we think, what is at the core of attachment, especially in early life, is this need for co-regulation, this need for being supported in regulating one's physiology, but also one's state of mind. A very good way of thinking about attachment is about predictions and expectations, right? So if I need help, I will approach somebody else and then I will, first of all, I will experience how easy it is to elicit help and then I will also experience how efficient the help is. And depending on these two properties, I will either keep approaching somebody or I will start to regulate by myself and not approach others or I will upregulate my support-seeking attempts. So this is the basic idea of attachment in terms of predicting whether I should approach somebody or not. Every attachment is unique. Every relationship is unique. And that, of course, also means that uh, the attachment between a child and the mother will be different from an attachment from the child and the father. And uh, in fact, any other caregiver like, uh, you know, grandparents and later peers, romantic partners. So, yeah, of course, we expect that every attachment is different, that the attachment to the father will also be different from the attachment to the mother. What do you feel, though? Because obviously, in my work, we measure attachment between child and mother and child and father in a slightly different way. So obviously, we have the strange situation for mothers and we have the risky situation for fathers. Do you think it's valid to test them in different ways then? Because I think the received wisdom from that is that the whilst both attachments are important in terms of security, there's an added element in the father's attachment where it's all also a little bit about challenge and about taking risk. Yes. So I think one development is that more recently, the strange situation is also done with fathers. And then we can, of course, have direct comparisons between the two. And I don't think that you would expect the basic tendencies of the relationship to be different. So it's the security will still be highest if the father is available and if the father sensitively responds to the needs of the child. Of course, the way in which this is done can differ, and it will probably differ, right? And it's completely okay to differ because it doesn't have to be the same. And if something in a father-child relationship is different from a mother-child relationship, it doesn't mean that it's bad. It's just different. And this difference is actually very meaningful because the more different interactions and relationships a child has, the more different social and emotional skills they can actually learn. Absolutely. And I think that's where, again, from it coming from an evolutionary point of view, it's this idea that evolution hates redundancy. So actually, we don't generally, looking at evolutionary history, find two roles that are exactly the same when they don't need to be. So I think from my point of view, and what I've argued in my work is that that element of risk 
which is added to the father's attachment is actually really critical. And when you look at fathering around the world, whilst fathering differs so widely (laughs) between different cultures, what we find in all of them is this idea that fathers also do challenge their children a little bit more than mothers do. And that's important in terms of building mental and physical resilience and understanding how to operate in the world. So I personally think that attachment differences is actually quite critical to understanding the differences in the roles. I just wanted to talk a little bit there about the attachment, but also how dads do build bonds. Because you mentioned earlier that obviously dads don't go through childbirth. They don't breastfeed. They don't go through pregnancy. And biological mums do get a bit of a head start with all those processes because you get lovely bonding hormones, you know, lots of dopamine, lots of oxytocin, lots of beta endorphins surging around, being terribly helpful. Dads don't get that. So how do dads go about building the bond? One thing that has been found to quite consistently associate with, you know, low testosterone, high oxytocin is rough and tumble play. So that's what you already mentioned a little bit. You know, this funny way of challenging and just to be a bit more active and it's not just, you know, the soothing relationship and aimed maybe more at teaching, but just to challenge a bit and to just just be playful because that also seems to be in man's and, and father's nature. So that's the natural thing to do, I think. I think one of the most fascinating things about play, because I think fathers sometimes get dismissed as the fun parent, which I know some of them really hate. But actually, that fun is critical, isn't it? Because it's it kind of seems to have two roles. First of all, to help build the bonds, because if you're, for example, rough and tumbling play, because it's so intense and because it's so quick, but there's lots of touch, there's lots of laughter and giggling and all that kind of thing. That's a wonderful way of releasing loads of bonding hormones very, very quickly. But also it's important developmentally to the child, isn't it? That it helps the child understand things like reciprocity and empathy and communication and all these things that actually that child's going to need going forward. Yes, and in rough and tumble play, there's also, you know, very often a very sudden change. Things happen very quickly. Sometimes things are not that predictable, right? So there's lots of adaptation needed. And that's also why, you know, dads tend to uh, make dad jokes, right? That everybody finds pretty (laughs) horrible. But it's also this kind of, you know, this cognitive stimulation of putting two things that are naturally incongruent together and to start understanding new relationships and new things. So that's a key component of father-child interaction and father-child play. I seem to remember I read somewhere by one of the big research groups that they defined fathers as the parent of developmental stimulation, of the one that sort of pushes things forward and stimulates the child. And and talking about development, again, when I started, the mantra was fathers play no role in development because they're not the primary carer and the mother is like the environment of, of growth and development. But again, we're starting to see studies coming out now that suggest that's not the case, that fathers do play a role in development and sometimes they play a unique role which is separate to mum. What do we now know about dad's role in development? In terms of attachment, for example, there have been quite a few studies looking at behavioral problems, for example, internalization, externalization or language and cognitive development. And what is really the main outcome of these usually large meta-analyses, right, where many, many studies are combined together to distill really the most predictive factors that there really is no difference between moms and dads and that it sometimes is really important to have two parents to whom the child is securely attached or to have one parent where there is a secure attachment because that uh, secure attachment can buffer against other more insecure or even disorganized attachments. So this is one side. The other side is that there also is a lot of research coming out these days that really shows unique contributions that fathers influence certain developmental aspects in their children that go above and beyond what the mothers do in that respect. And so we really see these two 
main lines of research coming in that, first of all, the mom's and dad's influence is, is similar and you need uh, both of them, but then also that the father's influence goes above and beyond that of the mom's. We've always known that dads are hugely important in the development of the child. And actually, the fun dad role is integral to building the child's confidence in tackling risky situations. I want to take a look at fatherhood in a wider context in society. I am always struck by how much a father's role and self-identity is shaped by culture and society, particularly compared to mums. And that culture, in the West at least, very much views dads as a secondary parent. Why do we have such a poor view of fathers here? I mean, one explanation might be that there is this stigma from a biological point of view, right? That fathers are just not made to be parents, that there is something in their biology that precludes them from being parents and that there is just no trust in fathers because they are perceived to not be prepared at the core to be fathers. The other reason that is related to that is also that, you know, there is not really that much mention of research about fathers and how they are actually really prepared to be parents. So I recently looked into this and I found that research on the mother-child relationship from a social neuroscience perspective is about five times larger than the science on the father and the father-child relationship. Even though it's increasing, but we are still lagging behind. So what we really need is to spread the message and to get rid of these perceptions that men are not meant to be fathers because it's simply not true. The COVID lockdowns, obviously it's a recent piece of history, were very, very difficult for, for many people, but maybe one of the silver linings for some men was that they got to stay at home with their children and maybe be more involved in, in home life. And I know that Many of us took the opportunities to study dads during this very special period. What did a lot of those studies show? Well, most of these studies showed that fathers actually hugely enjoyed to spend more time with their children, that they could bring them to school in the morning or maybe do the school run in the afternoon, and that it transformed the relationship between these dads and the children, you know, that they helped with homework. They also did much more household work. And through this, the relationship to their children grew and they were able to understand the children better. The emotional connection was just much stronger. It, it was so beneficial in, in many different aspects. Absolutely. And I think for fathers, it also gave them the opportunity to show that actually they could do this. They did have the skills to do it and they could work alongside their partners to do it. And I think that was really something that unless something like COVID had happened, would have been very difficult to show. Yes, and very importantly, it made fathers more confident, right? They were given the opportunity to actually do these things because many times, you know, they're not given the opportunity or they're given the opportunity while one or two or three or more people watch them and always continuously judge them. And here they were just like, given the opportunity, here you have time, spend it with their children and do what you like and do your best, right? Without being judged or without having too much input from outside. And I think that really strengthened the confidence in dads to realize, hey, I can actually do this. I'm good at this and I like it. That's also so important that they realize that it's a good feeling and it helps the entire family and that it's beneficial for the child, for the partner and for dads themselves. Absolutely. So the science seems to be pretty solid on the importance of dads. 
And we've had this amazing experience with COVID where dads have actually been able to put into practice the fact that they are good at this. But society still seems to be struggling. How long do you think it's going to take for the science to get through, the myths to be busted, and is to really start changing our attitudes to fathers in society? Well, I sincerely hope that it doesn't take too long anymore because, you know, there are many people, including you, who do tremendous work to actually put this message out there as much as possible and to educate people. But what we really need is change at the institutional level, right? For example, at the hospitals, when mothers go in to give birth, where fathers are very often not able to stay or just to be there a couple of hours or not at all. And then at schools and everywhere else. So basically, we need to give the fathers this opportunity that I just talked about before, right? And this is still not really happening that much. And it's difficult to say how long it will take until the change is really implemented where it is needed most. I mean, I'm kind of hoping that if we can get dads a little bit more involved, maybe the next generation who've been brought up by more hands-on dads, by dads that have been given a little bit of an opportunity, maybe we can do it that way. I've just got one more question for you, really. We're a really young field, Stel, dad science. Luckily, we're a much bigger band than we used to be, but we're quite young. What do you think are the next big questions? What do we need to look at next? I think one of the next big questions is to not only focus on dads, but to focus on the whole family. So I think in terms of research, first we had a lot of research done on moms and how they interact with their children. Now we are realizing that dads are also important, so we are starting to focus on dads. But what we, I think, really need in the long term, especially also in terms of you know the biobehavioral synchrony we talked about, is to really have the entire family, so mom, dad and child, and to look at the whole triad. And then we will probably also need to take into consideration, you know, siblings and the larger family context. From a research point of view, that's one area I, I would like to do more research personally. And I also see where there is still lots of work needed. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. So we know that dad's brains go through a tremendous amount of change as they learn to care and bond with their children. The changes male humans experience cross-culturally once they become fathers enables them to build unique relationships and have a specific role in their child's development, which scaffolds the child's entry into the world, teaching them resilience, emotional regulation and social skills. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Dr. Pascal Vatirka. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great pleasure. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Anna Machen asking, why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Anna Machen. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. 
Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.